and welcome to NSTA, The Bus Stop. This is the official podcast of National School Transportation Association. I am Kurt Mackison, Executive Director. And I do want to remind folks that we have a couple of great webinars in the queue over the next couple of weeks. So on January 24th, we're going to have our NSTA Advocacy Prime Policy Report. That's going to be held at 12 o'clock, once again, via webinar. And then on February 2nd, the NSTA Manufacturers, Suppliers, and Technology Committee is putting together a flash webinar, and that is going to cover utilizing technology to support your bus drivers. Now, that's on February 2nd at 12 noon. If you want to register for either of these webinars or both, you can contact the NSTA office at 703-684-3200. Now, today at NSTA, the bus stop, we have Rich Kelly. Rich is president and founder of R.C. Kelly Law Associates. He's also NSTA counsel, and he's been a frequent contributor to the podcast. So, Rich, welcome back. Hey, uh, thanks for thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. Delighted to be here. Great. Now, the topic du jour we're going to talk about came out last week, SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States. It's ruling on the OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, had an emergency temporary standard, an ETS, uh, on a vaccine mandate that would have covered employers with 100 or more workers. And that was obviously the vaccine against COVID-19. It was an important court decision last week, Rich. So why don't we just dive into that? talk about the 6-3 ruling by the Supreme Court. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. And it was interesting because, you know, we're all from time to time see Supreme Court decisions come out. And normally it's something that plays out over a period of years very often. But what was especially interesting here was that this played out really between November and, you know, January. It, it, it was kind of really educational, really instructive, I think, for everyone to see the process up close and immediate. I think everybody knows by now that the the result of that was the you know overturning of the vaccination mandate that was put out by OSHA. But you know to to see it go step by step and at one point enforced, at one point not enforced, I, I thought was pretty fascinating. Absolutely. Now, was there anything in in reviewing, you know the 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 case itself and the concurring and dissenting opinions was there anything that stood out to you yeah, there there was i mean you know ultimately the the courts looked at the osha statute which is a creation of congress and and looked at this as uh, i would say an overreach of the authority granted to osha under the osha statute you know pretty much they recognized and said that you know covid is certainly a risk of daily life, but that doesn't necessarily make it an occupational hazard, you know, merely because everybody works. The, the part I think that surprised me was, you know, in reading the dissents, the, the arguments from the dissents weren't so much, I'll say, law-based as much as they were emotional-based. You know, there was a lot of, you know, reasoning that, uh, you know, COVID was a, a, a hazard that we should address. And, you know, I think a lot of people, I think perhaps even the majority didn't necessarily disagree with that, but it's a question of how it gets addressed. One of the other, uh, I'll say, dynamics that surprised me 
was, uh, you know, even things like, uh, I guess it was Justice Sotomayor who, who put out the number of, you know, 100,000 children in serious condition with COVID-19 mm-hmm. uh, when mm-hmm. the number really was something closer to 3,000. So, uh, again, it, it seemed to me like there was two approaches, uh, one being, you know, the strict looking at the authority of the statute and the authority of the Constitution, and the other looking at concerns over the seriousness of the the risk of COVID. So that was a little surprising. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I guess maybe we should, you know, start at the beginning a little bit and say, now, if this emergency temporary standard was, was implemented, what effect would that have had on school bus contractors? You know, it would have been huge. Uh, you know, overall, I think that they were saying that the standard would affect 84 million workers. Uh, and it would certainly put employers in the position of having to terminate potentially reluctant employees. And in a time frame where we struggle to hire drivers already, I think it would make a, an already critical you know, driver shortage even worse. That, and I just think, again, it, it pits employees against employers. And, and I just, I, I think that's a hard hard road to go down, especially in the, in the current climate. I, I think one of the things that's, you know, always challenging when we're dealing, you know, with issues uh, relative to student transportation or education in general is the idea of the respective roles between the federal government and the state governments. And I, I kind of want to throw that on to, you know, this landscape because this decision basically said that OSHA did not have the authority to to issue this this mandate. But I, I guess my question to you, Rich, is in a similar situation, is it possible that states could issue a similar edict and and have that upheld by courts? Uh, you know, they 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 could, they could, and they have. In fact, if you if you look at history. Uh, all 50 states, every one of them, have historical statutes that require a certain list of vaccinations before students are permitted to attend public schools. These have been litigated at the state levels and upheld at the state levels. And uh, they address, though, things that are are clearly, I'll say, and universally um, fatal. Uh, polio, chickenpox, measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria. These are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, pictures of kids in iron lungs and that sort of thing. And, and I think that there was enough of a, both a, a risk to life and a risk to children that uh, states were, were moved to, you know, to actually roll out these requirements. And, uh, you know, they've been enforceable ever since. Now, you know, if you look at the the COVID risk, currently there are 25 states that have enacted vaccine mandates. And ironically, there are 12 states that have enacted COVID vaccine mandate bans. And I think that part of the, you know, so so part of that is, well, you know, nobody wants to be sick or ill. I think everybody is you know, universally agreed that, you know, COVID is not a, not something anybody wants to have, but does it fall into that category of, uh, you know, polio and chicken pox and, and these, these really, really terrible diseases. Um, and, you know, plus we all know that there's a little bit of a political element to it as well. And I think all those things mixed in 
would indicate that, yeah, there are and there will be state actions. And I think that those will probably continue to grind away at the, at the various state levels. Yeah. And I, I think that's always has to be certainly in, in the you know, focus is that, you know, sometimes these court decisions and I look at a lot what's going on with election law as, you know, is, is this the right venue to argue this case? And in this particular case, and you would know much more than I would, it doesn't seem that OSHA was the right agency to promulgate this regulation. And perhaps the federal government wasn't the right avenue to, to pursue a kind of one size fits all vaccine mandate. Did I capture that somewhat correctly? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'd give you an A on the uh, law school exam, <laughs> but, but, but I think, I think you know what you said is exactly right. You know, what is the right vehicle? And, and I think part of the challenge here, and, and it actually says it in the Supreme Court's uh, opinion. You know, they said that this was an effort to do something through regulation that Congress was unable to do or unwilling to do through legislation. Uh, and, and even if they had been able to, you know, or done legislation, you know, would it have been constitutional? Whole nother question. But I, I think you're right. It's a question of what's the right way or the right vehicle. One of the observations within the the case was that it was just a very, very, very broad uh, mandate, we'll say, uh, a, a regulation. It, it treated the the risks of, you know, people that work perhaps outdoors in an employer of more than 100 uh, employees, the same as people that work in close quarters in like a meatpacking or something like that, you know, where those risks are very different, but this particular regulation didn't distinguish between the two. We also talked too that concurrently, there was a health and human services statute that was looked at by the court, and that one went the other direction. But the idea there was that it was tied to funding. In order to get federal right. funds, those uh, healthcare organizations receiving the federal funds had to make sure that certain workers were vaccinated. And again, tying funding to conditions for funding, uh, you know, is much more enforceable than trying to force fit, you know, basically a regulation from OSHA that came from an executive order from the president. And, you know, meanwhile, it's really Congress is the one that should be making laws. And on this particular one, it's really the state legislatures that, that should be the ones acting. Right. Yeah. And that's an interesting point because it, it then spurs another question in my mind. So we kind of see that a one size fits all kind of federal edict, you know, may not be proper. Okay. Then on the other side, and I think this is the part that really confuses, you know, school bus operators or school districts or, you know, whoever might be impacted, how far down the regulatory chain can you go without this becoming really unwieldy? So each individual, you know, municipality and its Department of Health coming out with their edict that folks have to follow. So um, yeah. do you see that as a problem? Well, I, you know, I kind of do. And the reason I say I kind of do is because, you know, we have helped contractors that have been, I'll say, tangled up in, uh, I'll call it micro local actions. You know, that is right. county yep. health agencies 
that through contact tracing have determined that there's a hot spot of infections coming from a particular school or even garage facility. And, uh, you know, we have had contractors that had the county department of health come in and say, you know, we traced an infection hotspot to your facility and we are requiring under the authority of the state's police power that you, you know, shut down, you sanitize, you do testing, you do you know, all these things. And, you know, I've, I've done the research and they have under the state's police power, the authority to do that sort of thing. I mean, if you look at it at, at its most basic level, you know, if a, okay. a state decides that, you know, you've got to stop at a stop sign, it's not because the federal government or the constitution says it, it's because states have police right. power and they can shut down a road or put up signs or do whatever they do. And we accept that speed limits, 30 miles an hour. Why? Because the local police said so. Same sort of thing here. While it's weird, perhaps, I, I think it is maybe more appropriate, you know, rather than saying everybody that has a more than 100 employees is in the same bucket. They're saying, right. hey, through testing and tracing, we, we've found a hotspot and it's you. I, I think that's much more defensible way to go. Interesting. That is interesting. Now, I, I guess, you know, there's been a lot of great conversation, you know, as this issue of, you know, vaccine, and we haven't really even talked about mask mandates, you know, as we continue into this, you know, school year, <laughs> if I said, Rich Kelly, look into your crystal ball and say, you know, do you see anything on the horizon that would be useful for people to hear? Yeah, you know, uh, my crystal ball hasn't really been really helpful lately these days because a lot of stuff I would have never dreamed of happening has happened. But, uh, you know, I, I think that the push and pull, we'll say, of assessing and responding to perceived risks at schools is going to continue, certainly through this school year. And it wouldn't surprise me if it doesn't continue into the coming school year, M meaning there's perpetually going to be a faction of, you know, parents, students, school board members that feel that the risks weigh in favor of a school closure or that the risks don't weigh in favor of requiring masks. And, and I think at the individual school level is where those kinds of things are going to reside. So I, I think they, the advice in the crystal ball is that contractors should become prepared for and accustomed to how they intend to deal with these things at the school by school level going forward. And in my experience, that's been really where, where the battle lies. You know, who gets paid, who doesn't get paid, who has to wear a mask or have a vaccination. I think it's going to increasingly become a local school by school issue. Yeah. And unwittingly, uh, Rich, I lured you into uh, us ending with the discussion that we're going to have school bus contracts post-COVID-19, part five as a webinar, and we're tentatively scheduling that for March 2nd. But you'll talk about, you know, these subjects and more, you know, on that webinar. Yeah, uh, excellent uh, segue there, Kurt. And, and you're right. In fact, I've been doing a significant amount of research on it uh, kind of across the country. And it's been really instructive because we have two years worth of schools and contractors battling over these basically contract issues. 
you know, should a contractor be paid for partial service or for maintaining fleet and staff during closures? Um, you know, how does that interplay with some of the statutes that were passed shortly after the onset of COVID and even more currently in recent months? So all of that really plays into the contract environment, the bidding environment, the RFP environment. And we've got a lot of good material uh, queued up. In fact, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge to, to get it into a bite-sized presentation. Uh, but fortunately, the, the you know, members of NSTA can also take advantage of the business council program where they can call uh, our office and get assistance with these kinds of questions as part of their membership benefits. Yeah, and to you know, discussed it. Let's talk about the business council program and and how and where they can reach you. Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're pretty easy to find on the internet. We're uh, rckelly.com. That's our website, uh, and you'll find in the upper right hand corner of our homepage we have a little link there where you can schedule a thirty minute consultation if you like to schedule that way, or you can simply even just call us or email us. And uh, what that does is that, uh, you know, kind of sets us on the path to talk about your specific situation. You know, it may be that you have a, a bunch of contracts, but you have one or two that are just problem child, so to speak. And you're perhaps at wit's end and, and you want to see if there's any new ideas out there, maybe a new approach, a new idea, something you haven't thought of. And just that, you know, discussion back and forth, we find to be really, really productive because we can take some things that we've seen work in other places and and maybe make it as a suggestion for something that uh, is an approach the contractor hasn't tried. We find they've been real productive and really well received. So, you know, see us on the internet, call us at uh, 215-896-3846 or uh, help at RC Kelly. And uh, we're there for you. Great. Fascinating discussion today with Rich Kelly of RC Kelly Law Associates, and he's also NSTA counsel. Hey, Rich, thanks so much for stopping by NSTA, the bus stop. Yep. Thanks for having me and stay healthy.